Good morning, Community Faith. It's so good to see you all in the room. Really thankful that we can connect even online this morning. And uh, listen, I may have stayed up a little late last night because um, I am an Aggie. And uh, last night was a good night for Aggies. And so, uh, yeah, we can clap for that if we're going to clap. That's, uh, some of you are like, I can't believe he's talking about it. Um, I did wear maroon on purpose today, but I got to be honest with you, I was careful. I got up early this morning, had lots of caffeine, so I'm really caffeinated right now, which is dangerous. Um, I actually put on an A&M polo shirt, and then I was like, no, no, that's too much, Wes. Um, I don't want to be offensive to any of you, and uh, because I believe we've got something really important to talk about today, and so I don't want to distract from that um, as you uh, reflect maybe back on the day of college football yesterday. Um, as... Uh, Before I jump in, I just want to say this really quick to the fellas in the room, uh, that maybe you've got that special lady in your life. If she is not already registered for the Thrive event on Friday night, can I just encourage you to do whatever it takes to free her up from anything that maybe she's obligated to or responsible for Friday night so that she can be here and be a part of what I believe is going to be an incredible experience for uh, everyone that's here. So um, yeah, make it a point to do that this week. It'll be good, I promise. A couple weeks, or last week, actually, I was in the middle of my message, and sometimes I will go through my notes that I've got here on my iPad, and oftentimes I'll just kind of follow my script. And every now and then, there are times where something comes to my mind, and I say that and didn't plan to say it. And many times when I do that, it usually turns into a joke after the fact, and somebody gives me a hard time after the service is over, like, I can't believe you said that. And I'm like, yeah, I can't either. Um, but last week, there was something that came to my mind while I was teaching in the 930 service, and then I said it again in the 1130 service, and I was talking about four groups of people. And we were talking about kind of our culture in America with where we are, and um, specifically, I think, in talking about this, this, this entire series, Stronger, in the book of Daniel, I think this is really relevant for us to consider. And so I want to kind of demonstrate that and go back to that for just a minute to kind of set us up for today. And so I've got four chairs I'm going to set out. What I did last week, and I heard another guy talk about this, I think it was last summer sometime, maybe even last spring, it was kind of at the peak of the pandemic. And Um, his thought was, and this is just a theory, this isn't truth that comes from the Bible anywhere specific, but he he said that our culture in America is is basically broken up into four different groups. And he said the first group that he would identify is those that are committed, full out, all out committed Christians, Jesus followers. I mean, they are sold out to Christ. They're not perfect. It's really important that you hear me say that. I'm not saying that people that maybe find themselves in this seat as devoted followers of Jesus they're not perfect. They're still flawed. They're still going to mess up every single day, probably in some form or fashion. Uh, But these are the committed Jesus followers, committed Christians. The next group is what I'll call today casual Christians. And what I mean by that are people who claim to be Christian, uh, would say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I go to church. I attend to certain things that are connected to church. I, I believe some things about the Bible. I know things about the Bible. But there's not a whole lot of impact in what they know or what they believe about Jesus in the rest of their life outside of maybe a Sunday morning or an experience where they get together with other uh, Christians. And so that would be the casual Christian. And then the third group would be what I called last week the creasters. Now, these are people who would claim to be Christian, but really their Christianity lands at Christmas and Easter and maybe a handful of times outside of that, but not really devoted, not a lot of understanding about the things of, uh, of Christianity, but um, they would claim to be Christians. And then the last group is what I would call, because they needed to all stand with C, so you see what I did on the screen behind me. Um, these are your anti-Christians. So these are uh, groups of people who 
would say, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm not all about the things of church. Uh, Maybe even some in this category uh, have some hostility towards the church. They are frustrated with what the church uh, lives for, what the church promotes, what the church believes to be true. Um, Maybe these are people that aren't hostile towards Christianity, but maybe this is someone who, and maybe, maybe some of you maybe land in this category. And I just want you to know, this is, this is a safe place. This is a great place for you to be at Community Faith if you find yourself in this group. Maybe this is someone who grew up in church, uh, grew up in a traditional church somewhere. Parents kind of led them there. Uh, maybe mom and dad were more of a priesters or maybe even a little bit casual with their faith. But as you grew up, you're just like, man, this really isn't important to me. Or maybe there was some hurt from the church or people of faith. And so you just kind of have found yourself here not really sure what to think about this, but just kind of dismissing anything about Christianity. Now, here's why I said this last week. This is where I want us to kind of wrap our minds around for today. What this guy that said this a year or so ago when I was listening to him talk is that what's happening in our culture right now is there's a shift that's taking place. For decades and decades and decades in the United States, you had your committed followers of Jesus, your casual Christians and your priesters that made up the bulk of the population in the United States. And so this shaped our culture. This shaped a lot of the decisions that were made in our culture and the way that we live our lives. And what's been happening over the last several years is there's become this shift that's actually been accelerated during the pandemic over the last couple of years, where people who are casual followers of Jesus, maybe even priesters, instead of linking up On this side, they're moving and shifting over here. And what's beginning to happen is the ideas and the thoughts and the beliefs, the relative um, ideas of the unbelieving, the non-religious, the non-Christian, is these are linking up with that. And this is beginning to influence the bulk of our culture and our society. And the reason I want us to think there and kind of launch from there today is because I think there's something important about this seat that I want us to understand. I'll put my cards on the table for us today as I jump in. I believe this is the ideal seat for every single one of us to sit, not out of obligation, not out of being dictated to do something with our lives that we don't desire, but because this is where we find the most life, but not only where we find the most life, it's where we find the greatest purpose, purpose that changes the culture around us, that begins to change the sphere of influence in our lives, in the lives of those that we're connected to. And so with that in mind, I want us to jump back into Daniel chapter 7. As we think about this idea of choosing our purpose, choosing to live a life of purpose, I want us to go back to the chapter we started in last week. The book of Daniel has taken a little bit of a shift. We were reading through the narrative history of these Hebrew guys who had been taken from their native land and were captives in Babylon. And we've been reading about that. Last week, we started going in the direction of learning about apocalyptic type things. It got a little scary, a little spooky. We started reading about beasts and Daniel's having this dream and it's really fascinating, a lot of information. And I, and I want to kind of jump back to that today and begin to unpack even more. I told you last week, we're going to jump into some of the thoughts and the ideas and the truth around this spirit of the Antichrist and why that matters to us today. And I think as we unpack the severity of the Antichrist, we begin to unpack the victory of Jesus we begin to see the clarity of our mission in these days. We'll begin to clearly see our purpose, the purpose that God has called us to live in today in these times. So we're going to pick up Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 15. It says this, As for me, Daniel, 
My spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Daniel's having a dream. There's this vision that he's seeing. And if you remember back to last week, if you missed last week, you can go back and watch uh, the message on YouTube. You can watch any of the messages that Mark and I have taught over this uh, entire series. He's having a dream. He's having a vision of this bizarre beast-like creatures coming up out of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it's concerning. It's, he's distressed. He's, he's alarmed. He's concerned with what he's watching, what he's observing. It says, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. Continues on in verse 17. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Remember, there's four beasts. We talked about them last week. There was the lion with the wings that represented the kingdom of Babylon. There was the just went blank. The lopsided bear, the Medo-Persian empire. Then there was the leopard with the four heads that represented uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom, his empire that didn't last forever. And then it divided up into three different generals. And then there was this other beast that was unique. It was different than the rest. And a lot of people land in this place where they believe that that's the Roman empire. Um, some people don't, aren't confident that it's representing the Roman empire, but it is representing a universal kingdom in this world. We can, we can confidently say that. It's unique. It stands apart. It's different. And we begin, as we skip down to verse 23, we begin to hear more detail about this specific kingdom, the fourth kingdom. Look what it says. It says, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. You heard me just say that. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. This is getting dark. This is intense. This is terrorizing. Continues on. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue the three kings. So you see this imagery of these 10 horns. Now, anytime we read about horns in scripture, it's pointing us to something of power, a creature that has power over somebody else, over something else. I mean, how many of you, this is is crowd participation. If you're online, you can um, hit the little hand wave button in the comments. But how many of you have an animal in your house? You have a pet at home. I'm not talking about your kids, even though they act like animals sometimes. Um, All right, we got a lot of hands up in the room. I'm sure there's a lot online. Um, Let me ask you this. So all of you that just raised your hands, maybe you're just kind of waking up and you're like, I I didn't get to raise my hand. Um, You can raise your hand for this. How many of you who have animals in your house have animals in your house that have horns on their head? Anybody? All right, none. Oh, I see, I see a hand. I see a hand. There are a couple of hands. I would say this about an animal or a creature or a being with a horn on its head, that if it has a horn and it goes into a competition or a fight or a quarrel conflict with something that does not have a horn, the one with the horn always wins. And I think that's what we're seeing here. But what's interesting is out of this kingdom with the 10 horns, there's one that will arise from them. This is the Antichrist. This is the little horn as we learned about last week. Continues on in verse 25, and it says this about this particular one. He will speak out against the most high, that being God. He's saying he will speak out. He will blaspheme. He will put God on blast. That's what it's saying. And wear down the saints of the highest one. So he's saying he will mock God. And he will wear down those who trust God, God's children. And that word, that imagery is this idea that it's the slow progression of wearing down the faith of those who trust their heavenly father. Think about like a worn 
article of clothing. You have clothes that are worn out. They're, they're, they're starting to tear and they're, they don't look as good as they used to look. They've been worn. They've been under pressure. They've been used. They've been abused. And now we use those clothes as really trendy pieces of clothing. I mean, we pay a lot of money for jeans that have holes in them. Last weekend, I wore a pair of jeans that had holes in them and I had somebody walk up to me just like every single time I wear them. There's somebody that comes up to me and says, man, can't you afford a pair of jeans that doesn't have holes in them? And I'm like, I can, but these were actually more expensive than the ones I have that don't have holes in them. And we're just a twisted society, all right? We've got some issues. We're buying torn clothes now. But it's this idea that the, the, those of faith are being worn down. They're being persecuted. They're being attacked. Laws and systems and institutions are beginning to break down their faith and what they believe, and they're becoming weaker. That's what we're seeing in this imagery, in this vision that Daniel has. It says, And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. There will be a specific time where the Antichrist will be able to continue to perform and to act and to live in this particular way. What we're seeing here is the severity of the Antichrist. This is the first thing that we need to understand and we need to wrap our minds around. As you walk through this passage, it's dreadful, it's terrorizing, it's It's discouraging. It's dark. Every time something kind of somewhat scary happens in my house or somebody says something that's kind of scary, my youngest son always just says, wow, dad, that's that's dark. That was dark. This is a dark passage because it's pointing to the spirit of the enemy and it's real. It exists and it's existed for millennia. And Daniel has this vision where he's seeing this and he's seeing these images and these things take place and he's describing the king that this particular kingdom will produce. A king that's dominant, a king that's strong, arrogant, eloquent in speech. Very dangerous combination. He's referring to the Antichrist with a lot of specific, clear details. We continue to read about some of this imagery as we skip on to Daniel chapter 8. Specifically in verse 23, look what it says. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. There it is again. A king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, eloquent. This is someone of influence. This is someone that has a following. People see this person, they hear this person, they think, man, I I like what he's saying. I like what he's doing. I think I want to follow this person. This is what's happening. Verse 24, it says, his power will be mighty but not by his own power. Notice, not by his own power. It's important for us to see this. This is not someone who's just operating out of human strength. This person is operating with the spirit of the enemy pushing him. It's important for us to see that. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. You're like, wow, Wes, this is getting really terrible. (laughs) Continues on, it says, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will be one of deception, to deceive people, to believe that they don't need God, to believe that they should exalt themselves as God, that they should exalt him as God. There's this deception that the Antichrist will be stirring up with his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. So we have this description that's dark, that's terrorizing, that's 
scary. But there's a little glimmer of hope in this last sentence. But he will be broken without human agency. In other words, this one, the spirit of the Antichrist, will be defeated by something beyond human power. No human has the capacity to destroy this spirit, this Antichrist. It's interesting is about 300 years after Daniel sees this vision and records this vision and the interpretation of it, out of the horns of Greece, out of this kingdom from Alexander the Great, just after that, in 170 BC, there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes arose from the sub-kingdoms of Greek, and he was a terrible human being. He was one who demanded conquest and control. He set out on this violent, just trek to wreck people, specifically the Jews. Go back and you can read this in history, in the Apocrypha. This little horn, so to speak, aims his power. And this is what's spoken in verse 9. If you go back and read this, he aims his power to the south and to the east. So if this one, this little horn was in Greece, the south and the east would be Egypt and Israel which is exactly where Antiochus Epiphanes marched and launched his attacks, specifically targeting the Jews. This is in exact alignment with Daniel's prophecy. Bible scholars call Antiochus the Hitler of the Old Testament in his quest for more power, for worship of himself, he murdered more than 80,000 Jews. Not only did he murder 80,000 Jews, but he made coins for Jerusalem with his name on it. It said, King Antiochus, God in the flesh. And he demanded that they worship him as God. Not only worship him as God, but he would go to the temple of the Jews that was a place designed to worship Yahweh, the God Almighty, the God of the Jews, our heavenly father, And he demanded that in that place that was designed for the worship of Yahweh, that they would worship him instead of Yahweh. Not only that, they were asked and demanded and required to eat the flesh of pigs in the temple place. That was something that was considered um, absolutely against the Jewish law. So you see this taking place. And then out of nowhere, at the peak of his rule and control and conquest, Antiochus comes down with a stomach virus and literally loses his mind and dies. Not by human power, not by human hands. Exactly as Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. You know, it's interesting because this gets a little bit tricky because we just heard a specific fulfillment of this chapter, of what Daniel saw. Let me show you something. Bible writers, in the original writing of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they used Daniel 8 as the platform for pointing us to a future fulfillment of the Antichrist. And you may ask, you're thinking that, you're like, okay, hang on, hang on a second, Wes, that's confusing to me, because you just said that the prophecy Daniel prophesied has already been fulfilled in Antiochus, so why would it be fulfilled again? Well, you see this throughout Scripture where prophets prophesy something specific. And as they prophesy something specific, there's a near fulfillment and then there's a far fulfillment. 
You see, the fulfillment of prophecy with Antiochus is an imagery. It's pointing us. There's the actual occurrence that is pointing us to a future occurrence of the ultimate Antichrist. Let me, let me paint the picture like this. I, growing up in far west Texas, uh, I know a lot of you don't know this, or maybe some of you do, a lot of you do. There are, there are actually large mountains in far west Texas. And growing up out there, the air is super clear. There's not a lot of humidity. There are dust storms, and so that makes it, visibility a little bit tricky at times. But growing up, I remember being up in the mountains and climbing up to the top of the, the highest mountains and just looking. And you could see literally for 40, 50, 60 miles sometimes on the clearest days. And as you're looking out, you would see these mountain ranges. Now, from 40, 50, 60 miles, as you see these mountain ranges, they look like they're stacked right up next to each other. But if you were to get in a car and begin to drive to those mountains, as you get closer, you realize that there's many, many miles in between each one of those mountains. It's similar to the near and the far fulfillment of prophecy that we see in Scripture. There's the near fulfillment of the Antichrist in Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's the far fulfillment of the ultimate Antichrist that we've not experienced yet, that we've not seen yet. And we're living in between the two mountains of prophecy. You see this in a lot of different ways throughout Scripture. I think it's important to notice what John says in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, and it's taking some of this imagery from what we see in Daniel, and he says this, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that, in, that Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. I think what I want us to see is there's a tendency in us to miss the spirit of the antichrist that has always been at work, that is at work even today. The spirit of the antichrist that works and uses people, uses groups of people to accomplish his destructive work to distract us and destroy us from our heavenly father. It's what Daniel is pointing to. The enemy is always working, never rests. You see this throughout history. I mean, you think about the Holocaust, and you think about Hitler and all that he accomplished, all that he did to try to exterminate the Jews from this earth. It's connected to some of this prophecy that's happening. Joseph Stalin worked tirelessly, and he took the lives of 10 million of his own people He starved 7 million with irrational grain quotas. The spirit of the Antichrist is working today, and it is severe. And I know that there's a lot of us that we try to guess and determine, oh, I think this person is the Antichrist, or that person, that politician, or or that person in history. And the truth is, is that the ultimate Antichrist has not arrived yet, based on what we see in Scripture. But here's what we know for sure about the Antichrist. Very simply, this is what it is. The Antichrist will pursue the persecution of Jews and Christians in the world. It will come from a universal kingdom. It will set up a temple in Jerusalem, which, just so you know, just FYI, the temple has not been reconstructed in Jerusalem yet. So that hasn't happened yet. But he will set up the temple in Jerusalem. Ultimately, he'll be a ruler with a lot of power. He'll be an oppressor, a speaker, and a loser. And here's why I say loser. If you go back to verse 21, look what it says. It says, and I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days. You might need to underline that, highlight that. The ancient of days came and judgment was passed in the favor of the saints of the highest 
one, ancient of days, God himself. Your heavenly father, my heavenly father, God himself shows up. Judgment was passed in favor of the who? The saints of the highest one, the highest one being Jesus Christ himself. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. It continues on, it says this. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. This gives us hope. It's saying that he will be destroyed. This, this antichrist, the spirit of the antichrist will be completely eliminated. It continues on in verse 27, it says this. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, to the people who claim Jesus as king. You see, here's what, here's what Daniel's describing. Before any of this has happened, Daniel's describing this highest one being Jesus, the son of man, is going to arrive. He is going to return one day. And he has been given the kingdom by the ancient of days. His heavenly father, God himself, has given the highest one, Jesus, the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom, all dominion, all power, all glory to Jesus. What's interesting and what's important for us to know is that Jesus doesn't want the kingdom to himself. He wants you there. He wants me there. He wants the saints there with him. And so Jesus did everything he needed to do so that we could spend forever in his kingdom with him. And so anytime you start to feel down about yourself, your worth, your value, you just remember what Jesus did to give your life worth and value for all of eternity. That's what Daniel is pointing to. He says, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. In other words, we will live a life of response to how great he is and how good he is to us. This isn't some evil dictator putting his thumb on us, telling us you have to live this way. This is an incredible, great, good God who wants good things for his children. And our life in his kingdom looks like a life that's just responding to how good and how great he is. This is what Daniel is pointing us to. He is pointing us not just to the severity of the Antichrist, but he wants us to see the victory of Jesus. That's what he wants us to see here. As we begin to unpack this and understand this, we begin to see our purpose in this. Here's what's happening in the scene. He's pointing us to Jesus. He's pointing us to the highest one. He's pointing us to the son of man, Jesus himself. This is Porky Pig showing up on the scene saying, that, 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 that's all folks. Like it is over. The antichrist is done. There will be a day where his dominion will end and he will be destroyed. The word was used was annihilated. I think it's important for us to understand this because we get to live in light of that truth even today in these times. Are they the end times? I don't know, but I don't think it really matters because these are the times that we were born into, which means these are the times that we're called to live in the truth of what we are understanding today. Last night, I stayed up really late, as I mentioned earlier, watching the AM game with some friends and I mean, if, I don't know if you watched the game, but AM jumped out and they started playing like a team I hadn't seen all season. And uh, the whole time I'm like, okay, I know we're up by two touchdowns, but I've seen this song and dance before. I've got serious battered Aggie syndrome. And so I just, I was just already starting to think, man, this, this isn't going to end well. I mean, Alabama's going to come back. They've got this guy named Nick Saban, which by the way, if you take Nick Saban's last name and you just change one letter, and just, just saying I don't really believe that, by the way. I'm not saying Nick Saban is the Antichrist. He's an incredibly ridiculous, good coach. But the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm thinking there's no way. And then the second half started, I'm starting to think, okay, maybe there's a chance. Maybe there's a chance. 
But in that, I didn't know for sure because I didn't know what the final score was going to be. And so the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, this is good. This is good. Oh no, they're coming back. Oh no, they're coming back. And I'm getting nervous. I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting discouraged again because I'm like, man, this isn't going to end well. And as I thought about that last night and again this morning, I thought, you know what? I think that's kind of the way we live our life. We look at the world around us and we're like, man, everything is falling apart. What in the world is going on? We get discouraged. Or things are good. Maybe things are really good in your life and you've got this thought in the back of your head where you're thinking, okay, things are going pretty good. Like this, things could definitely be worse and you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Thinking life, life's gonna take a turn here pretty soon. Something bad is going to happen. But I think what this text is for and what it's for for us today is to show us how the story ends. It shows us the final score before the game is over so that we don't have to live discouraged of what could potentially happen because we already know what's happening. It's different when you're living and you know what the final outcome is. That's the purpose of this passage. Daniel is looking at at chapter seven and chapter eight and looking at this vision and he's lived this life trusting God, walking through some incredible circumstances where God's protected him from the lions and the lion's den, protected his friends and the fiery furnace and he's in this place and it's still not all good, but he's probably sitting there wondering like, how is this all gonna turn out? And then God gives him this vision and says, hey, it's, it's all gonna be okay. Because in the end, the ancient of days wins through the highest one, the son of man, Jesus Christ. You begin to look around, you begin to reflect, and you begin to think, man, there's leaders that are failing us, government systems that feel a little bit shaky, institutions that are maybe leading us and taking us in a different direction. Life's maybe not exactly what you expected that it would be, and it begins to kind of look like Babylon is writing the script of our life and of our history. Or maybe you find yourself in a place where you're experiencing pain, some frustration, some dysfunction, relationships are a little bit shaky. You find yourself in a place of addiction, sin, stress, depression, anxiety. And when you begin to think about the rest of your life, you begin to think, this is just who I am and this is how it's gonna be. This is gonna be the final script in my life. It feels like at times that those things are gonna have the final say for you. But I find so much confidence and hope in this because we've seen the final score. The son of man arrives and gets the final word. This is the hope of Jesus. And I'm not sure, I'm just being real for myself and maybe you can relate, I'm not sure I think about this enough. I'm not sure that I reflect on the victory of Jesus that is going to take place at the second coming on this earth. I don't know that I think about that enough and I think that we should. I think we should consider the scoreboard. So let me give you, let me give you 10 quick facts about the second coming of Jesus. You can write these down. You can go look at these verses later, study these verses this week, because I think this is the scoreboard that we can live in light of today in these times. First one is simply this, Jesus will arrive on the earth again. We find that out in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. If maybe you're not having, you don't have time to write all this down, I'll post this on social media this week and you can, you can study it. But if you're writing notes down, the second thing is this, we will meet him in the air. That's kind of creepy. Just being real, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18 talks about us meeting him in the air. I hate heights. I am terrified of flying. So that freaks me out. But it also is kind of intriguing. I'm like, man, this is gonna be incredible. We're gonna meet him in the air? 
John 5, 25 through 28 talks about everyone in the grave that knows him and has had faith in him will hear his voice on that day. When he arrives, they will hear his voice. That's great news for those of us that have lost loved ones, those that have gone on ahead of us. Matthew 24 Verse 40 through 42 says that he will return when we least expect it. You know, there's a lot of people that consume their life with trying to determine when the exact day and time is gonna be when Jesus returns. Nobody knows. So why would we waste our time trying to land on the exact date? People have done it for years and they've always come up wrong. It says that he will return when we least expect it. Zechariah 14.4 says that he will return to the Mount of Olives. It's important for us to understand There's truth there that's pointing us to the final scoreboard. It says he will destroy the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. That's a big, important detail. The Antichrist's dominion, the spirit of the enemy, will end forever on that day. He will recreate the earth. We read about that in Revelation 21, verse 5. Here's what I love about that. He will recreate the earth. That means that he is working to make all things new. He's not working to make new things. If he was working to make new things, you and I would have no hope. He's working to make things new, to restore what's been broken, to renew what's not right. He's working to make things new. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11 says that every knee will bow. Let me read these verses for you. It says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Don't miss that. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on that day of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every single person, faith or no faith, no matter what seat they find themselves, every single person will confess that Jesus is Lord. Here's why that's important today. You don't have to wait until that day to confess Jesus is Lord. You have that opportunity today to say, Jesus, you are my king, you are my everything, I trust you with my life. Why would you put off to tomorrow what you can take care of today and to begin to live in that today? Matthew 25, verse 32 says, he will gather all nations and judge them. I encourage you, if you don't go back and read any of these other verses, go back and read this one and just think about what implications does this have on your life? To live out this faith, this purpose, this mission of your life, I wanna land at Daniel's response to all of this in verse 27. Look what Daniel says, or look what Daniel does. It says, then I, Daniel, in light of everything that he's just seen and heard and experienced, was exhausted and sick for days. that's That's a terrifying scene for him to begin to process and think about. It says, then I got up again and carried on the king's business. That's important for us today. But I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. Here's what Daniel does. Daniel gets this vision. He gets this information and he gets up and he goes about living his life on purpose with devotion to God, commitment to God, continuing to do a good job in his work, continuing to spend time personally with his heavenly father. We read about this. We talked about this in the first several weeks of this series. We see this in Daniel's life. Here's what I want us to think about. My fear for today, my fear the last two weeks is I've been preparing and kind of geeking out on all this end times conversation and apocalyptic ideas. My fear is is that sometimes as 
church people, people of faith, we've become so consumed with finding the information about the end times that we get distracted from the mission for these times. It's not enough to just have the information and feel good about the information. Daniel understands that. So Daniel continues to live a life of purpose and mission with the understanding that he has. What is our mission? This is what we say at Community of Faith often. Our mission as followers of Jesus is simply this, helping people find hope and freedom in Jesus. This stirs everything that we do. We want people to experience Jesus. We want people to experience the hope and the freedom that is found in Jesus. For our friends across the world in Burundi, to our friends in Cancun, Mexico, to those that are right across the highway at Roberts Road Elementary, this is why we do what we do, because we want people to experience hope, because there's a lot of hopelessness in our world today. And when we think about hope, what we're thinking about is we're thinking about a different future, a future of optimism, not because of something we can do ourselves, but because God has already done what we couldn't do so we can live in the hope of what that means for our future. But as we live in that hope, we also get to experience the freedom because a lot of us carry baggage and conflict and pain from our past. And as we begin to experience that hope, we begin to live in the freedom from our past that's working to rob us of that hope in our future. That's a life of purpose. That's a life of mission that we get to live for. So let me kind of land this back at the chairs with two questions. The first question would simply be, what chair do you find yourself sitting in? I mean, maybe, maybe you find yourself sitting here today. Maybe you're watching online and you've been kind of anti-church or frustrated or maybe even hurt by the church. And this is where you would say you might maybe sit in, in a place where you're anti-Christian, anti-Jesus. There's a lot of different reasons for being there, but you don't have to stay there. But I would just say, if you're here today or you're watching online, stay engaged, bring your doubts, bring your questions, bring your pain, bring your hurts. I believe God wants to cultivate your faith in some of that frustration and some of that doubt. Maybe you're not here, but maybe this is where you are. You've, you've kind of always been at church for the big days and the big holidays, and it was always family tradition, but your faith or understanding of Jesus really hasn't had an impact outside of that. Maybe there's some, and even here today, that you find yourself in this place of casual commitment to Jesus. You know a lot of things about Jesus. You're familiar with people who trust Jesus, but it's not really something that makes a lot of difference in your life. And maybe you're here on a somewhat consistent basis, but that's really all this is. It's kind of just a routine, a tradition, a family obligation. What would it look like to go from one of these three seats to a fully committed follower of Jesus, saying, Jesus, I trust you. I confess you as the king, as the boss, as the Lord of my life. I give you complete control. What would it look like to move from here to there? Every single weekend at Community Faith, this happens. People step into this relationship with Jesus. They cross this line of faith. But here's why I want us to think about this today. Because it's not okay for us to say, I'm all in for you, Jesus, and to sit in the seat and to stay in the seat, distancing ourselves from everybody else. That's not the purpose he's called us to. That's not what it looks like to help people find hope and freedom in Jesus. I believe what's happening in our culture right now is this shift is taking place as people are moving further that direction. What's happening is God is exposing those who are completely devoted to Jesus. And he's saying, now is your time. This is the time. These are the days for you to begin to love to show compassion, to care for, to begin to influence 
as Jesus begins to bring your faith alive, you begin to influence these. And all of a sudden you start to see this shift of people coming back, trusting the real Jesus, finding real hope and real freedom. Maybe, maybe they were just Christers for a little bit. Maybe they were even anti-Christian. You know what I love about this church is there's a lot of people at Community of Faith that used to sit in this seat and they found hope and freedom in this place. And now they're sitting in this seat and they're making a difference over there. I was thinking about this this morning and I didn't plan on sharing this and I didn't even ask for permission to share this, but um, so hopefully it doesn't get me in trouble. But I got to know, uh, I got to know a friend a little over a year ago and I would say, and, and this person might disagree with me, but so I'm kind of going out on a limb here, but I would say that a little over a year ago, this person probably sat here, maybe with some leaning here, maybe his arm around this chair for a lot of different reasons that really are insignificant. I, I, there's no judgment or condemnation for me on why someone lands here. But over the last several months, what I've seen is I've seen this trend of moving more to this seat in this guy's life. A few months ago, got to have a conversation with him about baptism and what it means to really trust Jesus. And he was baptized and there was a day where I sat there and I listened. And I got to talk to his family a little bit about baptism, but I didn't, what I said that day wasn't near as significant as what he said. Because he sat there that day with his two kids and he explained to his kids why he was choosing to step into baptism, to trust God. And I promise you there's nothing more powerful than to see a father begin to express his faith to his kids. So dads, would we be better at that? Would we do that more often? That's a life of purpose. That's a life of helping people find hope and freedom in Jesus. In this guy's life, I'm seeing him begin to influence other people. He told me a story the other day where somebody looked at him and said, man, are you on meds now or what? And he began to reflect on that. He's like, I don't, I, I guess God's starting to change some things in me. And I'm like, yes, yes, that's what he does. And it's not happening out of obligation. It's happening because the spirit comes alive in us and begins to shape us. What would that look like for us to be in this seat and begin to influence and impact? Here's how that happens. Prayer, pray like crazy for those around you. There's empty seats in this room today. Who could be sitting in that seat that you could invite and you could start praying for now? We're gonna to gather together on Wednesday at seven o'clock in the multi-purpose room. Mark and Laura started this prayer gathering a couple of weeks ago. It's a powerful time. A couple hundred people were there a couple of weeks ago. We're gonna do that again this week. Just pray for our church, pray for each other. Pray on purpose. As we pray, we become more aware of what's going on around us. We become strategic to maybe just make an invitation and say, hey, you know what? I got an empty seat for you at my church called Community of Faith. You gotta come with me. You'd be amazed how many people respond yes to that invitation. And then you just watch God show up and do something powerful in their life. Maybe for you, you're thinking, man, I, I wanna do that, but I don't, I don't know where to start. Here's where I would say start. Just remember Jesus. That's why we take communion. Some of you, maybe a handful of you realize that I only gave you nine facts about the return of Jesus, the scoreboard. I left off the last one, I left it off on purpose because I want us to land at communion. So when you came in, you were given the bread and the cup. You'll notice the bread on the top. So you take that first wrapper off and you can take that bread off. You know, when I was growing up, 
baptism was, or I'm sorry, communion was a little bit of a unique thing. And it was something that honestly, when I thought about it, it was something I kind of started to feel shame and guilt because it was always communicated, hey, you need to think about what's going on in your life. Does God approve? Is God okay with what's, what your life looks like? You need to get right with God before you can take communion. And there's, there's some relevance to that, but I think we miss that it's also meant to be a celebration, a celebration for what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. I heard a story this week of a guy talking about a friend of his named Stan. And Stan was a recovering alcoholic. And the story he told was that when it came to communion, every time they would do communion, Stan sitting on the front row would start crying. And so one day he just asked him, Stan, I noticed you get really emotional during communion. Why do you get so, emo- so emotional during communion? He said, he said this. He said, I used to drink to forget. Now I drink to remember. It's a celebration. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he looked at his friends, his disciples, and he said, this is the bread. He broke it, he gave it to him. He said, this is my body, it was broken for you. He said, every time you eat it, remember that it was my body that was broken for you to do what you couldn't do for yourself so that you could live in my kingdom forever. So as you take the bread, we remember Jesus. As he continued to sit there with his friends that night, Jesus said, this is my cup. He took the cup and he said, this is my cup, which represents my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And so he said, every time you take it and drink it, drink it and remember me. But notice what, we miss this detail a lot. You can go read this in Luke chapter 22 this week, starting in verse 14. One of the things that Jesus said in that conversation, he says, remember this as you drink it, remember me. But then he said, but I will not drink it until I come back and then I will take that cup and I will drink that fruit. He's pointing to his second coming. There's gonna be a day where he's gonna arrive. He's gonna bring his kingdom and we're gonna be together in his kingdom as God's sons and daughters. And Jesus is gonna drink the cup. And so we don't just drink this to remember what he accomplished already on our behalf at the cross, but we drink this to remember that he is coming back and we get to live in the hope of that today, the hope and the purpose in Jesus. So as we take the cup, we remember Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, the bizarre text in Daniel that is showing us something important. It's pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to your goodness, to your love for us, but it's also reminding us of the life you're calling us to live in these days. So right now I pray that you would give us the strength to live in light of what we know today. And as we live in that truth, would you use us to influence our families, use us to impact our neighborhoods, communities that we live in. God, use this church to impact the world I pray that more people in our world, in our community, in our homes would experience the hope and freedom we have in you because of what's happened in this room today. So I pray that we would step in fully trusting you with everything that we have and everything that we do. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for chasing after us. Thank you for Jesus. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.